Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Broadcasting from Resistance Headquarters, relentlessly fighting back against the clown dictator and his regime of deplorables. Never give up, never surrender. This is the Bob Seska Show, presented by BubbleGenius.com. From our nation's capital, it is Wednesday, June 19, 2019, and this is the interview edition of the Bob Seska Show. My guest today is someone whose name you might not know, but whose work you definitely know. I first met Jim Biederman when he was hired by VH1 to be the showrunner on my animated sketch show, Illustrated, back in 2003, and we've been friends ever since. More notably, Jim was also the executive producer on such shows as Kids in the Hall, The Howard Stern Show on CBS, The Tom Green Show, The Andy Dick Show, I'm with Busey, the Onion News Network, and so much more. He's currently working on the History Fluffer podcast with Dave Hill, link in the description. So get ready for some TV talk today, and if you like what you hear, please consider supporting this show by subscribing to our bonus content at bobseskashow.com. And now, let's talk with the great Jim Biederman. Hello. Jim Biederman, it's Bob Seska. How are you, man? I'm good. How are you? Great, great. You know what? It just occurred to me just as I was dialing your phone number. You know, this might be the first time we've ever talked on the phone when I haven't been freaking out about something. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> <laughs> After so many years. Uh, so, history fluffer. Uh, how did you end up uh, being corralled into doing a podcast? Um, Dave Hill and I had done a pilot for TBS called You Had to, you had to Be There. Mm-hmm. And the concept, backing up a bit, um, I, but a year and a half ago, I did. I consulted for um, Tencent, which is the Chinese Netflix, mm-hmm. and um, and Shanghai Media Group, which is the kind of the Comcast of China. Yeah. And I went to Shanghai. <clears throat> I went to Shanghai, and I consulted on their sketch comedy shows and their comedy roast battles, which was <laughs> a trip and a half. I can only imagine. What was that like? I mean, what are those? What are those shows like? Well, the interesting thing was that the sketch show, someone told me that in China, a Chinese, my, a guy who grew up in America, but now work, lives and works there, told me that in China uh, on, on television, sketch shows, the first sketch show on Chinese television was 1985. <laughs> I'm sure it was hilarious. Which is, uh, yeah, I'm sure it was. So, so what, you, what you're immediately faced with is, the kind of the realization that, say, Anglo-American, so British-American comedy 
has about 150 years uh, maturity level uh, <laughs> or maturation on Chinese comedy. Yeah. But the Chinese, based on their based on their alphabet, which has 4,500 characters or something crazy like that, yeah. um, they love. They're totally into puns and <laughs> wordplay and. <laughs> And so there's a lot of who's on first kind of stuff. There's a lot of a lot of that because uh, the same word pronounced slightly differently, literally spelled the same, but pronounced differently. You know, you could be calling your mom uh, beautiful or a fat cow, you know, and, and that gets a huge laugh. And so but that that was fine. So the, the sketch show was very much like, they, oh, they put their pants on the same way we do. And, you know, there's the, the grumpy lighting director. And I mean, it's the, the, crew, the crew's the same. Um, the cast was very, from what I could tell, I don't speak Mandarin, but they made me laugh just watching them. Yeah. Um, but the weird one was the roast battle because they do not have a tradition at all. Well, the closest tradition they have, of course, is kind of Mao's self critique, you know, that would be the closest thing they have to a roast battle. So, you know, so they go, they go overboard, like, yeah. and then they're told, there's a government censor everywhere yeah. and they're told, no, you can't say that. You can't say that. So then you're reduced to literally your, you know, your mama jokes and, um, <laughs> and puns and puns. Yeah. And, right. Puns. And, and so that, that, but we're, about a day or two before the taping, um, I, I have to tell you, the whole thing was so surreal and I had a translator with me and there was a minder for me and on the weekends I was free to do whatever I wanted except, you know, I, they'd say, well, we have a minivan waiting for you. I'd like, no, I'll go for a walk. And Shanghai is an amazing city. <laughs> and I would walk and I literally feel like I was being followed and sure enough, I was being followed. But um, it, wow. it was strange. But anyway, so the, about a day and a half before the taping, <clears throat> um, live audience, like 400 people in the audience, uh, the, the, the television center comes to us and says, we've decided that the last act should be a, a joy act. Yeah. And a, everyone a, in the room goes, a, okay, okay, okay. A jo- what is a joy a, act? As in happiness, joy. Yeah. Oh, okay, I see. So a happy ending for the sketch show. Right, exactly. Okay. But this, this is the uh, this is the this is the roast battle. Oh, the roast and battle. So right. everyone kind of nods accordingly, and they, oh yeah, sure, sure, no problem. No problem. <laughs> and I'm told later that what that means is that after I think it was nine acts, just a weird, just like hour fifteen or hour twenty show. So <laughs> nine acts. The, the after eight acts, the ninth act would be after eight acts of basically saying, you know, you know, Bob, you know, your 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 mother's so blank, whatever. Um, <laughs> They then had to tell each other how much they loved each other. That's yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. So in in China, that's an important element of broadcasting to make sure you get some love well, at the because, end. No, it's okay. it's all about propaganda and it's all I about see. government fascistic government control. Mm. But but um, that you know we're all Chinese and we're all we all love each other. You know, except for the ones we're imprisoning. But I think right. it's it's uh, and it was fascinating because that if that was didn't blow your mind enough. What blew my mind beyond that was at the taping, not a dry eye in the house, tears from the audience, from the performers wow. saying, hey, hey, man, I know I told you your mom smells funny about an hour and a half ago, but you know what the truth is? I'm just so happy to be working with you on the stage. <laughs> yeah, you're never going to see that with like Jeffrey Ross or someone. They're, they're never no, going to happen gonna, here. Yeah, never going to yeah. do that. <laughs> I was going back to China. I went to Beijing. Yeah. I Netflix. They they don't have Netflix. They don't have HBO. They they have Tencent, which actually is Tencent. a big 
co-owner, I think, of Spotify. Yeah. And um, they're fascinating. I mean, but everything is fairly – everything is – you know, you, you don't ever really forget you're, you're, you're trying to do comedy in that dictatorship. And, and <laughs> right. so there's a lot of misdirections and there's a lot of – well, we'll just say it's not – you know, we'll do sketch on the government, like going to get your driver's license, but we won't say it's your driver's license. Like they're always trying to stay one step ahead of the government. And they all, they're all the millennial generation, which is the biggest generation in China at this point, they're fully aware of the, the horrible irony that they exist under in terms of trying to do comedy. Yeah. But at the same time, you go out drinking with them and karaoke, which they love uh-huh. and they get smashed and they tell you, you know, they'll tell you how horrible it is. And then like a, the fucking light switch goes off and they'll say, but I'll tell you, it's better than I'm glad I live here as opposed to in the United States. And I'll say, why? (laughs) And they'll say, because your government doesn't care about you. And our government is like having the most loving mother and father ever now. Wow. Yeah. But you know, what's funny is I thought about it. I thought, wow, that's true. Black, you know, uh, brainwashing. But then I thought about the part about the United States. They weren't wrong about us. Um, Our government doesn't really care about No, people. definitely not. Right. Unless you're a Trump supporter. And then you uh, honestly right, believe that Trump loves you right. more than he loves himself. Right. Exactly. <laughs> sure. So it was fascinating. The whole, the whole thing was fascinating. And I, I had gone back and forth over a course of nine months. And, yeah. Um, anyway. But what I started to really start to, to – to, to, I became obsessed with this idea of what is that kernel? Like, so I could go and, you know, I would have the sketches or jokes translated for me and mm-hmm. I'd have to kind of, the translations are terrible. So I'd have to kind of, Oh, I get it. You know, I have to really figure it out. But, but what's that kernel? <laughs> that one thing that we all find fun, like no matter what your language, no matter what your, what is that? And it can't just be slipping on a banana peel. Yeah. And also this whole idea that, that, you know, in a, in a, in the United States, certainly in, in, arguably most Western developed countries, comedy isn't a dangerous act. Um, But there are in other countries, even in India, which is inferior democracy there, you can get killed for telling the wrong joke. That's right. And, um, and in China, you can just, you can just get disappeared. And, you know, it's, it's, and I started to become, I became fascinated with this idea that for us, it's, we take it for granted yeah. and the rest of the world. I mean, there's comedians, there's a, there's a Nigerian daily show. It's not the daily show, but it's their version of the, you know, a rip off of the daily show that sometimes just doesn't go on the air for weeks on end because the government decides they can't, or they've kidnapped the host or yeah. they've killed one of the producers. And I mean, <laughs> but these people still get up every fucking morning Jeez. to tell a joke. Yeah, and so right. I started to think like really became obsessed about it. So Dave Hill and I, who I've known for a long time. And I said, listen, I'd like to take you and kind of to soften the edge basically, but basically kind of do a, an Anthony Bourdain about comedy mm-hmm. around the world. And we, we sold it to TBS and we did a pilot and then they came back and said, this is great, but it's kind of too similar to what Conan sort of does. Mm-hmm. And, um, the travel part. Yeah. So, uh, we were figuring out how to work together. And one of the things that Dave does really well is he just, makes these tells these bullshit stories so history fluffer came out of the idea that what if dave was that guy at the end of the bar who <clears throat> you know if you and i are talking about this is he'll he'll you know perk up and say i i was in china once and then tells the most incredible bullshit story yeah. and so that is history fluffer and um 
I'm a big history fan, so it's great to basically fuck with history. So that's what that's what it is. That's the long winded version of it. But wow, anyway. wow! And you know what? I'm hearing you talk about China, and and you actually trying to work in comedy in China. And yeah. I'm going. You know, yeah. that's kind of a common denominator in your career, Jim, is working with. <laughs> insane people in insane situations. That's like I, I, I could list um, just right off the top of my head, like at least half a dozen yeah. shows in which yeah. you're yeah, yeah. at the center of this amazing tempest of creativity and madness all around you. And usually it's yeah. centered on, on one other guy. I, I don't believe in reincarnation per se, <laughs> but I have to believe that I've, I've killed more than one person in a previous life. And so now I'm, <laughs> Right, right. Um, I, I haven't been on a TV pitch in <clears throat> years and years and years. And so much mm. has changed over the last 10 or 15 years. And I'm not saying that from a, like an old guy point of view. I was like, oh, I remember back in the mm. old days when TV was TV. Uh, what I'm saying is it, it literally has changed even in the past couple of years. I mean, what mm -hmm. what's it like? I mean, how has the industry specifically changed for someone in your role as someone who runs these shows and goes on these pitches, right. what are you up against now that maybe you didn't go up against or you didn't have to go up against, uh, say, in 2003, 2004, when we were last working together? Mm -hmm. um, this, the same, it's the same thing, although it's the one element that's heightened mm -hmm. makes it incredibly difficult to sell is fear. Yeah. So you have executives who, as you know, were always fearful. They're, they're just fearful of losing their jobs. They've always oh, yeah. been that way. Yeah. But now, but now they're fearful that, that they're, you know, forget about getting fired. They may walk in tomorrow and their job just may not exist. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it is the, the disruption that is going on in the industry in terms of who the, where the power is. Yeah. Um, makes it extremely difficult to to sell, and, and and I will. And what's also happened is, as the movie business has become less and less of a actual business, yeah. and by that I mean uh, volume business. Mm -hmm. um, the downward pressure on us, you know, low life television scum, has been that now the actors who the, the A list actors, writers, and directors who can't get their movies made go, oh, wait, I can do, I can do the six episode version of my movie and get as much the same amount of money, if not more. And, right. and, 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 and so the, you're now competing against Brad Pitt, <laughs> you know, you're going right. in at two o'clock, you're going in at two o'clock at two forty five. Brad Pitt's coming in. Mm -hmm. I wonder which one they're going to buy. So it's, it's, it's very, very difficult. And I think a lot of it is basically this weird idea that still prevails that if I have, if I do have Brad Pitt, people will watch and it doesn't translate. Um, and then of course the whole social media aspect of it is another weird thing where you have older middle-aged executives buying a show from someone who's an influencer, yeah. the worst, the worst phrase in the world. Um, <laughs> Thank you. On just That's, I so agree with you. It's burned down the house. But, you know, Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or wherever they are. Um, and ideally they're racist and they, but they have two or 3 million followers yeah. and they'll say, wow, they have 2 million followers on Instagram. We'll do a show with him or her. And here's the part that, you know, the Nimrod executives don't understand. Um, the act of watching the act of, 
engaging in social media is a is what Marshall McLuhan would call, you know, a, a, a hot medium. Mm. Whereas watching television is a cool medium in the sense that when they do brain scans of people who are watching television, literally their their entire brain goes blue <laughs> because you're it's it's the ultimate it's the ultimate drug, yeah. and you're just there's no there's no activity going on. You're just you are passively accepting whatever is being sent to you. Exactly. Um, if you're doing social media, if you're engaged in social, if you, you know, you're the one driving your narrative. So you click on a link, you don't like the link, you click on another, you, you're going down the rabbit hole yourself. You're yeah. directing that. Yeah. And so what they've done when they do brain scans of that, that person's head brain is red, red and yellow. Wow. And um, so why would I like, and whatever dopamine that releases, why would I watch someone on television because because I follow them on Instagram, but network executives think that that's there's it's a you know uh, there's an equality there in terms of mm-hmm. and so then they're surprised when the two million viewers don't show up for their shitty cable show with their <laughs> shitty influencer, <laughs> right? And it's only like fifty thousand people, and they go, wait, but what about the what a, what about the Instagram? Mm-hmm. And you just want to shake them and say it doesn't work that way. It's just. Mm-hmm do you wonder why your audience are leaving? They're leaving because you are not providing the same kind of literally d- d- dopamine that yeah. they get from doing it themselves. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? I feel like, and I don't want to put the carpet ahead of the horse here and, and get into uh, when you and I first started working together. But I mean, with mm-hmm. my show, which is an animated sketch show, I always thought that mm-hmm. we were kind of up against that challenge, the, the red versus blue brain challenge there the passive versus active challenge where the my stuff kind of worked well in that active sense online but then you transfer that into a longer form tv format and then suddenly things start to break down and i'm not sure if that's the same dynamic but certainly that was a point of consideration given that i was coming from the internet and trying to adapt that to tv so i may have may have been one of the first ones to kind of try to make that leap from influencer to uh to television yep. and yep. so uh we were kind of both up against that to a certain respect uh, at that uh point there's no that. question i i think and 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 to extend it just a little bit the metaphor a bit and that is what if if not that we but we were up against another thing which is the um t- translatability which i think is yeah what you're kind of what you're talking about, which is I when when I would see your clips online, I would get a thrill. I mean, it would be thrilling, almost not only discovery, but also it, there was an intimacy between me and, and your website. Yeah, you know, I was there was a connection when you are then um, uh, piecing, you know, two, three, four minute sketches, animated sketches together mm. for a 30, 22 minute show. um you know, there's a translation problem, but also I would argue in terms of where we were, which is even further extending the metaphor, uh, uh, the wrong audience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the VH1 audience are trying to transfer something from, right. you know, like a 18 right. to 25 demographic online to, right. you know, 35 plus women on basic cable. And that was that was a right. hell of a leap. But you know what? The, the fascinating thing that I saw, Jim, uh, after it's kind of after we finished doing the sort of abbreviated one and a half seasons that we did um, is that a lot of those sketches got pulled out, added to YouTube and they now have 
like the the SpongeBong cartoons that we did for for the VH1 show that the VH1 that Steve Hillenberg yeah. didn't let us do that, that Nickelodeon wouldn't let us right. do. I remember. Yeah, I remember. those were those somehow uh, leaked onto the internet, and they now have. There wow. are millions of versions of it. Each one has millions and millions of views. I, I'm kind of sounding like Trump here, right. but it's true. They're right. downloaded all the time on YouTube, all over YouTube. There are German translations. I mean, there are insane wow. things happening with that series of cartoons and again perfect example we couldn't even get that one on the air on vh1 and it and it was huge on youtube once that finally uh came around right perfect example again it's 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 yeah it is it's exactly what the issue and so you now have executives who uh, if you haven't noticed already i have no great uh affection for (laughs) that who are truly Hogs. I mean, whether they're dumb or not, I, I don't know, but they're, you know, I'm sure they're all very nice people, but they're just cogs in the, you know, in the machine and, 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 and they're running scared and they really, they don't ever think about why social media attracts a certain level of audience yeah. and why they, why their stuff doesn't. And, and that's the hardest thing. I mean, because at the end of the day, yes, you're still pitching a good idea. You're still pitching a talent that's involved that they, that they want to be in business with or not. Um, you're still pitching something they haven't heard, or it's a version of what they haven't heard. So you, all of those things remain, but that one, that one element, which is the part where on, in the weirdest way, they they feel that they're they have the time is on their side by not making a decision. Yeah, yeah. When in, I would when I would argue, how <laughs> forget it. Yeah, right, right. Don't even talk about time. Don't the sand has literally there is no more hourglass left. And so I think it's <laughs> it's they, they don't but they don't think that way. They're yeah. they're Hollywood. I think you and I had this conversation. 15 years ago, sure. Hollywood is a reactionary industry mm-hmm. for an industry that is arguably built on technology and always has been. I mean, the, the camera, the projector, everything mm-hmm. all the way up to now. It's a, it's an industry that only exists because of, because of invention and technology um, coupled with it's a, you know, you hit, you print money. And then finally coupled with kind of ego notice art has nothing to do in those three pillars. And, and that for, that's what drives the industry. But for an industry that is basically, the, 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 the foundation is in, is innovation and, and technology. I've never met uh, a bigger bunch of technophobes and morons when it comes to technology. <laughs> then by the way, any studio network, cable network, production company, development company, just throw, just spit out a window and whoever you hit, they will not, they will not know how shit works. And yeah. it's amazing to me. Yeah. In fact, you and I got stuck with uh, at least one executive along the way uh, at VH1 yes. who, who not only yep. didn't understand the technology, he didn't understand cartoons or sketch comedy. No. And, and we're doing technology, no. we're doing cartoons, and we're doing sketch comedy. Right. He didn't get any Correct. of that. I mean, I'll never forget having a conversation with that guy where he's giving me a note on one of the sketches. He says... Well, uh, Bob, I guess Tommy Lee was in one sketch, and then we brought him back in a, in a separate sketch a couple of sketches later in the show. And he's like, well, Bob, how does Tommy Lee get from Los Angeles to New York in just a few minutes? <laughs> I'm like, 
What are you even? What are you talking about? It's a sketch. It's self-contained, and then it's also oh it's also car- it's the same format in which Bugs Bunny blew into his thumb to reinflate his head. And that's the universe we're dealing in. It doesn't matter whether Tommy Lee could physically get on an airplane and travel to New York City in three minutes. It just happens. That's the way. So that's the kind of, these are the kind of conversations oh that we God. were having with those guys at that network. And I, sh- I shouldn't I say would, guys. Would, one guy. One guy. Yeah, it was one, one guy. guy. I, 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 I still, by the way, I still have those conversations. Yeah. And I've now gotten to the point where I just say, I'll just stop and go, um, I'm sorry. Do you care? I mean, really? I mean, at the end of the day, and there's this usually a long pause, and they go, "Yeah, yeah, you're right. Never mind," and they move on. But I mean, the problem I think is that well-meaning people like you and I feel we need to um, answer the, you know, the idiot in the back rows question. Right. Um, when they go, "Well, how does he get across country?" I mean, he was just in New York, and, and you just say, "Well, I mean," and 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 it's a, I, either being raised well, or it's just you, know, you just don't want to be rude. But I really, as the older I got, I just it's okay to be rude. Yeah, it's yeah. okay to just say, "I'm sorry." Do you do you give a fuck about that? Because I don't. And by the way, if you're if you're giving a fuck about it, then we failed. Right, 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 right. Well, see, that's one of the things. I mean, that must be a new development for you, Jim, because uh, one of the many things that made me want to be you when I grew up was you always made your work seem effortless despite all the madness around you, whether oh, it was coming from the, the talent that you were working with or the executives that were you're working with, or in many cases, both. How do you deal with the stress of the idiot executives, the difficult talent, the deadlines, network pressure. I mean, do you feed off of that excitement or do you, have you just developed a way to holster your emotions in those cases? I, I think it's a combination of both. I think there is, and I will say that when I'm not on a show, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not a depressed person per se, but I get, I get depressed. Yeah. I get like kind of antsy yeah. and anxious. And, and, and then yet, by the way, at the same, for the same, in the same token, I'm, when I'm in a show and I'm dealing with, you know, name any of the crazy people I've worked with, um, I, it's like all I can, all I, in my head, it's just like, I just, I want to get, I just want to have a week off and just not have to talk to them. But I know that in that week off, I'll be crazy by Tuesday night. (laughs) See, now the other thing is too, is I always thought that you would be a great network executive yourself and i'm sure you i'm sure you've had offers but the problem is you're too smart and too centered to be a network executive i think and and it sounds like um you're really into the sort of the pulse pounding nature of being in the thick of the production is that right i see it's an interesting thing i mean i've certainly there's offers have not that many but i i've certainly entertained them um but I think if I'm being honest with myself in taking those jobs, I would be so jealous. Like if, if, if you were producing a show for me as, and I'm the network, I would be so jealous of you yeah. that you got to be creating something, no matter how painful that creation was for you. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, I might even be causing some of that pain as the network exec. I, it, it's, I would still be jealous of you. Yeah. And so I think, uh, cause I, and I'm not one of these people, like I'm not, I don't believe in the romantic, the romantic artists, you know, struggling, pained or, you know, artist, um, that the only way art comes out of is through pain. I don't, I don't believe in any of that shit. Um, but 
I will tell you, there is, it's fun. It's so much fun to be in the middle of, of you know, it's mm-hmm. fun to be yep. creating. Mm-hmm. It's just fun. And, and no matter how, uh, how difficult or, or, or time consuming, or in some cases, you know, it can ruin relationships that you have. It, it's, it's still, it's its own drug. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would never want to be the person who's just giving you notes because I would be very, very jealous. <laughs> I'm sure. I, you know, I've never <laughs> asked you this, Jim, and we've had many, many uh, conversations, a lot of time spent together. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever asked you uh, how you first became interested in working in television. I mean, did you always see yourself as sort of the, the man behind the curtain, <clears throat> sort of the wizard behind the scenes? Or do, do you, did you have no, performance no. aspirations or what? No, I never, I never, I never really had performance. I mean, I, you know, in high school and shit like that, but nothing, I never really, it never drove me. Um, it's interesting. I've been doing more and more of it lately, not, and more is, you know, a strong word, but, um, and I will tell you maybe up to about five years ago, I had nothing but fear in -hmm. terms of performing. Now I just literally, I walk, I I could be a thousand, could be 1500, 2000, 5,000 people on a stage. I wouldn't, it wouldn't even bother me. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, 10 years ago, if there were 500 people, I'd be like, oh, blah, blah. um, yeah. so that's one thing, but I, I, uh, without getting too much into my childhood, um, became obsessed by, by, with Hollywood mm-hmm. and I knew every movie that was made from probably 1938 to about 1975. And I could wow. tell you what the studio was. It was almost, uh, autistic, but I'm not autistic, but I would, I would just memorize these things. And I would memorize certain like B and C and D level actors that nobody remembered, but who had like, you know, they did 30 movies in 15 years and you know, they had, they were, they did well and they, they were considered stars of their time that nobody, nobody remembers now. And, um, and, and my, my father would do this thing, like (laughs) he'd have a dinner party and he'd, call me downstairs and say that like name a year and then ask, ask about a star and Jim will tell you what the movies they were in in that year. And I could do that. And wow. it, it, it was an escape. It was an escape from a otherwise unhappy childhood. And so I, <laughs> and that's all and I'll leave it at that. But, um, wow. I think that it, I became obsessed by it. And so my whole gear was film. I wanted to go to, I want to be a filmmaker. So I got into NYU film and back in the time when it, 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 uh, on the one hand meant even more than it does today because you were only about 10 or 15 years away from when Scorsese was there. Right. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, probably much more bullshit then than it is now. Like now it's actually, it kind of means something. Then it was just, it was art school essentially. Sure. And, um, and so I went to NYU film and I graduated and I refused to move to LA. I stayed in New York and there's no real film work in, yeah. in New York. What, what you realize is that even Martin Scorsese has to fucking battle to get his movies made. And so, um, I worked for, I worked for a Japanese video company. That was interesting. Um, I worked for a small production company in New York that did, documentaries. And then I heard about a job at um, a company called Broadway video, which is Lauren Michaels production company. And I jumped at it and I was there for nine years. So, and what, um, what year year was that? When did you start at Broadway? It was like eight, 90, 90, I think. And the, one of my first big 
and Lauren took a shine to me and, and he's a difficult person to get you to take a shine. <laughs> but, um, and by the way, you don't want the shine at the same time. Cause he, the, the, the moth can fly too close to the flame in his case. And so, um, I see. you know, he's just very, he's a difficult, he's a very difficult person. Yeah. So, um, and I'm sure, and, but I'm sure you've wants- got more than your fair share of Lauren Michaels stories, right? Like, well, like- I have a, I have to back up the only television thing that kind of, I mean, you know, apart from what everyone else watched. So Carol Burnett, I loved, yeah. you know, but then I also loved the $6 million man. So, you know, right. um, I obviously had no taste, uh, but <laughs> I remember staying up late one Saturday asking my father, I must have been like 10 or 11, mm. and asked my father to um, if I could stay up because um, there was a band that was going to be on Midnight Special, which was uh, Wolfman Jack. Oh, yeah. Wolfman I remember Jack that. From American, yeah. Wolfman Jack from American Graffiti and obviously from Radio Fame hosted a thing called Midnight Special on on. On Saturday, on NBC's, mm-hmm. on NBC on Saturday nights, and I remember there was a band I wanted to see, and I wasn't allowed to stay up that late. It was eleven thirty, and my dad said, "Sure, just this once," and he sat with me, and this other thing came and said, uh, "Wolfman Jack's uh, Midnight Special will not be seen tonight, so that NBC can bring you the." And this thing came on, hmm. and I remember having this. Uh, the only other time I had a similar experience was when I heard the Sex Pistols album for the version. And this is I'm in I'm in Denver, Colorado, so that should give you an idea of yeah. how mind blowing a Sex Pistols album could be. <laughs> but um, it was the same thing where I just I just was watching this show and going, I don't know what the fuck this is, <laughs> but I love it. Yeah. And I can't tell you why I love it, but it was so different and so remarkable and so it just had this life to it and that was the first episode of Saturday Night Live and I never yeah. missed an episode after that so by the time I ended up working for Lauren he was obviously a god to me and the moral of this story is never meet your god yeah and I I I he I remember we he I'd written a memo about something and he and I worked for the guy who ran the company not him and he somehow got a copy of the memo uh and he said I want to meet this kid and I went and had and he, and he, he had dinner with him. And I was like literally pissing and shitting my pants. Cause it's like, he's just you and him. Yeah. What do you ask him? What do you, what do you ask him? And what I realized is that you don't ever ask Lauren anything. Um, he tells you cryptic weird shit. And, um, and I remember leaving that dinner thinking, walking home in down the street, streets of New York going, what an asshole. Like, I mean, it was, just... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of the reaction. Doesn't uh, most people who meet Lauren for the first time are walking away going, what the fuck was that all about? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, he would say, he says these cryptic things that, mm-hmm. you know, it's a little Chauncey Gardner esque, you know, it's oh, kind yeah. of, you know, well, you know, you know, Jim, the, the garden needs to be watered and you're like, Oh yeah. And you think it's really deep. And then you're like, no, it's true. Gardens need water. Like <laughs> he didn't, didn't say anything mind blowing. And so you just, you realize that, you know, it's, it's, he, he's a charming man. He's an intelligent man. He obviously, you know, he has a vision. I don't know what it is, but he definitely had one at one point. Um, he's complicated. He's 
crazy. You He's know. kind of an iconoclast, right? I mean, there's no one quite yeah, yeah. like Lorne Michaels, right? There's mm-hmm. no one. It's like Larry, no, Larry no. King or even William Shatner or Donald Trump, for that matter. They're, just, they're kind of right. on their own track, separate from the rest of society. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And I think that it's funny that, you know, he was out in L.A. and and he was obviously from Toronto, but he was in L.A. before he you know, doing Lily Tomlin stuff and Flip mm-hmm. Wilson shows and things and laughing. He was on laughing as a writer and he, when they sent him to New York, it wasn't his idea to do the show from New York. It was the guy, the head of NBC he was like, why don't we do, why don't, you know, why don't we do like old time, old schooly thing and do it live from our old shitty, you know, studio eight H and he's told, so I've had subsequent to that dinner, I had way too many, dinners and travels and whatever with Mr. Michaels. But the most interesting thing that the, the times when he's regaling you with stuff where you don't, you aren't bored is, (laughs) or at least I wasn't is when he would tell you, um, because by the way, there's only so many different ways you can hear how he met Chevy chase because it's the same (laughs) fucking story over and over and over again. And, um, I've seen the only person I've ever seen, uh, uh, kind of put him in his place regarding regarding that was Don Olmeyer, who used to run NBC. Who, yeah, uh, yeah, unpleasant man in his own right. But I remember <laughs> sitting in a meeting with Lauren and a bunch of people, Warren Littlefield and Don Olmeyer, and and um, Lauren starts in with his usual. When I first met Chevy Chase, and then uh, you know everyone starts to go to sleep because they've already heard the story five hundred times. Don Olmeyer went. Yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. And it's just so, it's so through Lauren. I've never seen, I've never seen him actually thrown. It was like, he didn't know what to say. Oh my God. Anyway, the one time, so the stuff he would tell me about that, I just couldn't get enough of because I'm a geek. Is he would tell me how when they got to Studio 8H, they didn't even have like, they didn't even have cameras. They had to go find the old cameras from, you know, cross town in storage. And, yep. and they were using like 1965 cameras because NBC just never up, you know, it was, you didn't uh, upgrade in the back then. That was it. You know, maybe you went to color. That was it. Mm-hmm. And um, they had to do all this work on the studio. And it just was really, really cool because on top of the fact that they basically made a show that changed the face of comedy, I would say, internationally um they were also trying to figure out how the fuck they were going to film it <laughs> like they didn't even have cameras and so it's it was like uh, i'm always impressed by you know it wasn't just sisyphus and one rock it was yeah. sisyphus and like 10 boulders you know and mm-hmm. he did it he did it yeah he did it yeah it's so. really amazing that that was able to be pulled off and then how long were you at broadway video before you got assigned to or i don't know what happened how did you end up at kids in the hall so I worked for a guy named Jeff Roth, not the yeah. comedian, but right. he, the, actually the producer of, of Conan. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Conan took over uh, uh, Letterman's slot, um, this was 92, something like that, 93. Yeah. Um, Jeff had been the EP on kids for about a year or two. Mm-hmm. And I had, and, and Jeff would send me up to do stuff. Like when he didn't want to go up to Toronto, he'd say, let's just go for the weekend. But okay. And it was, I was, it was, I'm an assistant basically. And, um, but Lauren really liked me and he's like, he, he took me out to dinner and he said, what Jim, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a, a comedy producer. He said, okay, great trial by fire. Um, you're going to start on kids in the hall on Monday and you're the EP. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> and, like and, right, and it was I, that fast, I, that fast. Huh? It was that fast. It was that fast. And then it was, you know, then he started talking about, you know, when Paul McCartney, blah, 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 blah. So, um, 
I was like, I remember waking up in a, like literally cold sweat on Monday morning, like in, in the morning, like two in the morning, thinking like, I can't do this. I don't know anything. I know nothing. Yeah. And you hadn't literally met the, you, you hadn't met the guys yet. I had met like one or two of them, but, um, but the rest of them, no. And particularly Bruce McCullough, no, who's the, was the most, uh, the most difficult of them, hmm. but in a good way. Hmm. But, um, I, uh, so I went up and, and I was like, I, you know, just kind of bullshitting my way through that week. Yeah. And I remember it towards the end of the week, we, we would tape on, I think it was Friday or Saturday nights. I can't remember, but, um, they would do filming during the week and then roll in front of the audience. And, um, Bruce came up to me on Thursday and said, um, by the way, I'm not gonna be here on Saturday. I'm going on vacation. I was like, we're, we're taping. And he said, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm going to Big Sur. I'm going to go surfing. And blah, blah, blah. And I said, you, 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 you know, literally, I'm, I'm 30, maybe, 31. Yeah. And I said, I, you can't, you can't do that. You know, and, he, I was, and he just, he said, oh, okay. All right, well, fuck you. I'm going. And he turns around and walks away. And as he's walking away, I said, I, I, literally not thinking about it. I said, Bruce, you're fired. That's, that's what bosses do, I guess. Right. So, and, uh, yeah, but yeah, and you were serious. I mean, you're just like, okay, I'm gonna, was, I'm gonna fire yeah, one of the kids yeah, in the hall. I'll fire him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he stops dead in his tracks. His back is to maybe like 10, 15 feet away from me. His back is towards me. He slowly turns around and stares at me for. It just felt like forever. And I'm just like, oh fuck. And he goes, just starts breaking up in laughter. He goes, I like you. <laughs> that was, that was it. And, and so, like, so was, did he not go on vacation on Saturday or what? No. And by the way, and by the way, and by the way, he was never going on vacation. That's the whole thing about Bruce. Ah, that it was just it was a test. Let me fuck with you. Yeah, see, I now, remember when I, their movement. I was just gonna say, as soon as sorry. I found out it was a test, that's when I would have fired him. <laughs> it's like, oh damn <laughs> you, bastard! <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, I, I, he. I, I don't know. I got along with them. Great. I got along with all of them. Great. I mean, I think um, McKinney said, Mark McKinney said once um, that, that Jim was the only one who could talk to all of us. Yeah. Like he could, he could relate to all of us and they are a five headed monster. I mean, Scott Thompson, you know, it's a different conversation that you have with Scott than you do with Mark and certainly a different conversation that you have with Dave than you do with Kevin. And, mm -hmm. and, and yet if you attack one, forget it, you're, yeah. you're being, you're battling. You're battling Medusa. And I think it's, it's interesting because they, um, Barnaby Thompson, who was an English guy who produced their movie brain candy, um, came up to Toronto and I kind of, I was essentially tossing the baton to him to be like, he would do the movie. I would do the TV stuff. And he said, you know, what should I, you know, how should I talk to them? And it's like, just, just don't, don't be, don't go on and on about how all the movies you've done in England and don't, don't go. And he was a very posh English guy. And, um, he of course went in and started talking about how those movies and, you know, I could just see their eyes lighting up. Like, you know, I would imagine sharks who smell the blood in the water look like <laughs> right before they go, Oh fuck, there's blood in the water. You know? <laughs> so, um, one of them raises their hands. I think it was Bruce. And Bruce says, uh, Barbie, um, where'd you go to school? And Barney proudly says, uh, Cambridge. And, um, and they all kind of nod quietly. And then he goes back to talking, whatever he's talking about. And then one of them interrupts him again and says, did you 
So, like, how many times did you get fucked in the ass at Cambridge? Oh, my God. What is this? <laughs> and, and he goes, <laughs> his, face turns, yeah, his face turns bright red. And he says, I, I, was, I beg your pardon. And they said, how many times did you get raped at Cambridge? <laughs> and I'm just, like, burying my hand, my head in my hand. And he said, I, I was never raped at Cambridge. <laughs> like, like, you know. The, you know you're losing when you have to say I was never raped at Cambridge. And uh, God, the number of times I've been asked just, that question during a job interview. I wish I had a dime for every time someone asked me that question. <laughs> Damn it. Well, then it was. Then they all just piled on, and mm. it's like, what were you wearing? Maybe you asked for it. Like it was just, it was unbelievable, and it was really the kids at their best, which was yeah. their ability to play with each other and to play with others. Like, a, unfortunately, in that case, like a you know a cat with a dead mouse. But I think, yeah. um, he, he, and, and I just remember it's just like, I just like, I, I told you not to do that. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, so I really understood them. And I, and I was so honored to work on the show. I was a huge fan of the show. Yeah. So did that for three years. And then it, it basically got canceled after five years and came back and I did a few other things for Lauren's specials and things like that. But I really yeah. started to, the thing that I was like, I got to get out of here was I had sold a pilot to Fox and it was a big, big thing. And it was a, like a puppet. It was a life-size puppet show called um, wake up America. And it was a guy, uh, Dennis Klein who wrote it. And Dennis Klein was on the co-creators of uh, the Larry Sanders show. Yeah. So it was a super dark fucked up pilot with like spitting image kind of puppets. Um, uh, at the today show, behind the scenes of the today show. So it's like Tom Brokaw or a Tom Brokaw kind of um, character yeah. was like fucking an intern right before they went on air <laughs> backstage. It was like nut. It was super dark. Yeah. And Fox, I remember we pitched it and Fox bought it in the room and I was like, Holy shit. And it was like $2 million, super expensive pilot. And I went back to my hotel. This is in Los Angeles. I went back to my hotel and I called up Lauren and I was so proud. <laughs> and I said, Lauren, um, I've got great news. We, we sold a wake up America to Fox. Mm-hmm. They went great. So you use my name to sell stuff. Is that how this works, Jim? <laughs> what? Yeah. Well, normally I would have a bit of a Laurenologist. I knew what not basically, but I was so excited. I didn't say what I should have said, which was, you know, some other version of that, making sure that he couldn't say that. And I said, and then I, and this is the part I said just fucked it up. I said, no, 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 no. We never mentioned your name as if that's a good thing. <laughs> and that's he goes, gonna help. Yeah. And he goes, great. So you're telling me you don't need my help. <laughs> Jesus Christ. What a mind screw that was. I mean, was it, did he always deal in that? Like it did. You yeah, didn't ever, quite know always. where you stood. Always, always, oh always, God. always. And that's why, and I think if you ask any of the performers, even the ones who will not say a, an unkind word about him, that's how he wins. He just, mm. particularly for performers, which are even more sensitive to mind fucking. Um, he's, that's what he does. That's yeah. what he does. And I remember getting off the phone and going, God damn it. Like, fuck, <laughs> I'm not going to let that, that fucking old man ruin my, you know, rain on my parade. So I got on a plane the next day. I went back to New York and I literally on the plane came to the conclusion, like I have to get out of there. I just got to get out. Yeah. Because if I don't, I'll just be like all the other people who've been around since 1975 who really shouldn't have their jobs. And, mm-hmm. but you know, and he would always say weird things like, you know, Jimmy, you're safe inside here. I mean, I can't vouch for you outside of Broadway video, <laughs> but uh, like, why am I crazy? Like, what? <laughs> wait a minute. He, I, 
the way he would say it, you'd start to think like, maybe, wait, am I, am I eating my own feces in front of people? Is that what's happening? That, <laughs> Good and God. I don't know it. Yeah. I mean, you know, what do you mean? What do you mean you can't vouch for me outside of these doors? Like, why? Wow. Yeah. Thanks for nothing. My God. And so yeah. at that point, yeah. you uh, decided maybe it's time to uh, take a break from Broadway video and, and move on. Was that yeah. was that next step? Uh, the Howard Stern show on CBS? Was that the uh, the big move or was that was there something else in between that and uh, and the Stern show? So I, I got offered a job to run. Um, uh, uh, Howard Stern's radio show for CBS. Yeah. The late night he was doing. And uh, frankly, I mean, I could tell in my meeting with Stern that it, it was going to be temporary. I mean, he didn't want to do the show. He was just. Well, we all found out later, and I don't even think Gary knew, Gary Delabate uh, knew at the time. Yep. was that he was in the process of getting a divorce. So so Stern was getting divorced from Allison Stern at the same time you were getting hired to run his it was, CBS it show. It was the beginning the beginnings of their conversation about the fact that he was unhappy and he wanted to separate. And I think about a year after a year after that they got divorced. So yeah, it was all around that time. Right. And so he was very cagey and miserable and didn't want to do stuff and and it was difficult because basically all he wanted to do was the e-show he'd been doing up to that point mm -hmm. which was just robotic cameras filming his radio show yeah um and then he and he would take stuff that he, then we put stuff on cbs that even he would be like "Ooh, i don't know man that's pretty hard and <laughs> we put it on and cbs would let us put it on but then every monday i'd walk into the office and be like a bunch of messages from uh, the net, uh, TV stations across the country saying, yeah, we are no longer carrying your show um, because we got so many letters and everything. Yeah. So I would did that for about nine months. And then, um, then there was a weird time in New York where there was just, there was just, it dried, the work dried up NBC and ABC, I think in the same week fired 300 people each. So it was like, they were kind of contracting back towards Los Angeles. Yeah. So uh, we moved to Los Angeles and I, in so doing moved, the Tom Green show, which was uh, had just started on MTV, yeah. and Tom wanted to move to LA, so we moved the show to to, to LA, and that was a lot of fun. Tom so, so you went right, so you went right, right from Stern to the Tom Green show. That that was uh, yeah, I think it was like a four month. Yeah, as far as difficulty, that was kind of a lateral move, right? It was like going from Stern yeah, to I mean, Tom, Tom Green. Tom, yeah, I mean, obviously Howard's much more. Machiavellian in his, yeah. you know, when he wants to screw with you, yeah. um, Tom's just manic depressive. And, and, you know, it's, that's, the, I have to say it's the first time I actually, I mean, learning how to navigate Lauren and to a certain degree, Howard was kind of, uh, 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 uh brain building, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. but, um, n navigating Tom was a whole nother matter because it was actually navigating, uh, me mental illness. And, yeah. um, I'd never had to deal with that. And so, he, what I, you know, quickly learned was he loved McDonald's and then subsequently <laughs> the reason he loved it so much is because it would give him a sugar rush and then he wouldn't feel, you know, yeah. depressed for at least 20 minutes. <laughs> and so I'd walk into, like someone would say, you know, Tom wants to see you. He's, he's feeling down. And I'd walk into his office, you know, this is sunny California, but it was like a pitch black, like all the blinds were closed and the <laughs> shades were closed. And he would just be lying on the floor, kind of, you know, arm in arm with gloom. And I would just say, what, what's, what's going on? And then he'd sit down and, you know, he'd say, well, I, I can't, I can't, I can't do the show. I just can't do the show. I'm like, why not? What's, 
Why not? I just can't. I can't. I can't do it. <laughs> like I, I just want to let me be clear here. On the schedule today, it says you're supposed to go out and put uh, dog shit on a microphone and put it in people's faces. Um, I don't know why someone would be apprehensive about doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So how can how can how can I help you? So, and be like, I, I just can't, I don't feel I'm funny. I don't feel that. And the, the, I make fun of Tom, but I have to say his genius. Tom's mm-hmm. genius, and it is genius. Yeah. is that coming from Canada, the ultimately pol- the ultimate in terms of polite culture, yeah. um, you know, taking it's, they almost take British culture one step too far. Mm-hmm. And that is, it's kind of just, you just don't tell anyone to their face how much you fucking hate them. And so, um, he, but what he did was this really interesting kind of physical comedy where he would invade people's space. And so the dog poop on a microphone or, my favorite was when we, we put microphones inside of dildos, huge, huge dildos and putting them in people's mouths and asking them <laughs> questions. And, and so, I mean, do you, are you, are you sitting around like and watching as these props get assembled as you're like, okay, how do we get the dog yeah. shit to stick to the microphone? How yeah. do we get the microphone yeah. into the dildo and go, you know what? Yeah. I went to NYU. I went to <laughs> Martin Scorsese's yeah. alma mater and I can name every movie between 1938 Even- and 1970. And now I'm putting <laughs> dog shit on microphones. Are you going, how did I end up here? <laughs> But that's the it's a perfect example of what we were talking before. I would really get into, you know, like how it is. Yeah, it's a problem you had to solve, basically, you know. And so it became it, that's part of the the high that you get. Mm. It's like like we had this one thing where it was right around the time when people, you know, it was people had to, you know, smoking was on its end, you know, in its in its final days, oh, yeah. and so. Um, Tom came up with this idea that he would go into a restaurant where there was no smoking, but we would have have him encased in this plastic box, like this gigantic plastic box, which would have its own table and chair inside of it. And he would just chain smoke and it would just be filled. Literally, you know, there would not only be smoke in it, but it would just be the, the, the inside of the plastic would be that, horrific car kind of dripping down. Like it was like, how do we make this as gross as possible? And then he would like, you know, talk through a, a speaker and order his food and like a, a slot would come in or what, you know, they, they put the food through a slot and, um, it's a great bit. Yeah. Uh, but you know, trying to figure out how you do that mm-hmm. and, and how we get, how do we get him out of the van and into the restaurant without, any, without being stopped? There was a, a it's amazing called, um, pizza undercutters, which is just brilliant yeah. where he would follow, he followed, we followed a pizza delivery guy and Tom had a tackle box with like pepperoni and mushrooms and, you know, and then he had a bunch of cheese pies in the back of a truck and he would just follow this other guy, this, this pizza delivery guy who was a real pizza delivery guy. And just where he parked to deliver, Tom would run out of his truck and like, literally get in front of him and ring the doorbell before he did and I'd say, what was the pizza you ordered? And the guy was like, pepperoni. And he'd like throw pepperoni. And the delivery guy would start getting really angry because he, he, you know, after the third time he realizes something's up. And yeah. by the way, why are these cameras following him? And um, I, the best part of it was when he went to this guy's house and the guy like said, I didn't order from you. I ordered from that guy. He's like, and, and, and Tom says, yeah, but I, I'll, I'll take five bucks off mine. I'm, I'm undercut, you know, and, he, and the guy who's like the biggest white trash kind of guy says to him, this is a run a business kid. 
it's not how you run a business. And Tom says, what do you mean? He goes, you should, you should advertise like everybody else. And I, I, you mean the brilliance in that moment you mean tom was doing it wrong that's that's crazy (laughs) exactly yeah yeah. and it was and the fact that that was to me that was the essence of tom's comedy is that he would get you know belligerent aggressive people to basically like how fast could he get to blow their top and um And it was a performance. It was a performance yeah. art almost. And and so I really, and then we did the Monica Lewinsky episode, which was yeah, a I mean, and a half. And then that was, I mean, that was crazy. I mean, you, you're on this insane stunt slash prank show with Tom. Then suddenly everything takes this super serious turn with, you know, a cancer yeah. diagnosis. I mean, talk about yeah. The, yeah. the way that was handled. I thought was so great because it really yeah. could have gone horribly awry with that, you know, the cancer episode and Monica Lewinsky and all the rest of it, where yeah. it was such a drastic changeover, such a switch from what people knew Tom Green to be doing in the nature of the show. Um, how did you end? Yeah. How did you pull that off? It was an amazing feat. So Tom, so I remember getting called into Tom's office one morning, yeah. and he said, "I I have a question for you. Have you ever had a venereal disease?" And I said. No. He said, uh, I said, why? He goes, cause I think, and by the way, he's dating Drew Barrymore at the time, not married, but dating. He said, I think, I think I might've got something from Drew, you know, but then you kind of like, well, of course you did. And so, um, I just said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, one of my testicles is the size of an apple. An apple. Holy shit. An apple. <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I, it's just, inflamed and blah, 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 it's painful. And I said, go to it. Did you go to a doctor? He's like, no. I was like, well, uh, that is not like any venereal disease I've ever heard of. And you got to, you got to talk to a doctor. And he was like, "Mm, I don't know. And somebody called his manager who managed Dr. Drew Pinsky at the same time. Yeah. Um, And he called Pinsky and Pinsky thankfully was like, He's got testicular cancer. He has to get to he has to go to UCLA, UCLA Medical School right away. Yeah. My uh, professor there. This is his field. I will get. I will have the guy clear clear the the decks and and get him in today. Mm-hmm. And so Tom went and then called me a couple days later, and he was had taken off from work and he called me a couple days later and he said, "So um, I have cancer." And I said, "Okay." we kind of already had all assumed something like that. Yeah. And he said, um, bad. And what we found out later in the surgery that is that he had, as he was going into surgery, that the doctor told him he literally had 50, 50 chance of surviving. And so, wow. I didn't know it was um, that serious. I, yeah. I, yeah that's oh, it was crazy. really serious yeah. because it had gone on. It had, it, they were concerned and it might have, it might have metastasized into other parts. I don't know, but they were very concerned about that happening. Yeah. Cause if that had happened, then it would have, that would have been the end. Right. And so he said, I said, okay. He said, but I don't, I, I can't do this through this unless I'm working. Yeah. And I immediately understood what he meant. And I yeah. said, of course, and he said, so I want to film everything. And I said, okay, I said, here's the deal. We film everything. Yeah. And he said, yep. And he, he agreed. He let us film everything. The only thing he didn't, want us to film, which is kind of funny, was the surgery itself. But what we found out later is that they, and the reason he didn't want them is he didn't want the doctors to get nervous because they thought they were being filmed, which was just a weird 
yeah. kind of performer's idea of what doctors do. <laughs> and, um, uh, but what they, they film all surgeries, I guess, for insurance purposes. And so we got the footage uh, from, which is like literally an eye in the sky kind of, you know, hidden uh, security camera from above and they shoot mm-hmm. everything back then. And we incorporated, it's the only part of the special um, that he uh, won't watch to this day. Yeah, there's something weird about seeing inside of you. Like, I, I had an ultrasound, um, like a stomach ultrasound, maybe a year ago. And I refused to look right. at the screen because I don't want to see what's inside of me. It's too much mortality all at once, right? Maybe that was his reasoning, yeah, too. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's exactly what He's like, I don't want to, I'm, for all intents and purposes, I'm dead on that table while they're doing this. Yeah. And, you know, when they do internal, when they do that kind of internal, um, um, you know, uh, the surgery where they take everything out. It is so medieval. I mean, they literally, they scoop your organs out and they kind of plop them to the side of your body. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's not, you know, mm-hmm. it's not pretty. It's, it's not, not the future. Yeah. It's not, it's not the future. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> and so, um, and so it's, it's hard to watch. We yeah. we've kind of sped it up really fast. And, but that special was interesting. It was, mm-hmm. um, it was, it was, it was, it was hard to do. And, yeah, and, yeah. but I have to say, I'm really proud of it. Yeah. I mean, you should be, it was a monumental thing, not only because of, again, taking that left-hand turn into a serious topic out of something that was entirely unserious, but also the yeah. fact that I think Tom was one of the first celebrities to bring testicular cancer to the forefront, to be public about it, because it wasn't, no, and, and it, it was before, the, it was before Lance things. Armstrong. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. Years and years. But I think, um, it's uh, what's really interesting, and I didn't know this, is that testicular cancer pretty much hits people from men from like 18 to 35. And after 35, if you, you, you're not going to get it. Yes. Um, and, and one of the things they think, and this is all what we learned through Tom, is that uh, a lot of it is trauma-based. A lot of it is what? What did you say? Trauma-based, meaning... Trauma, yeah. You know, get kicked in the nuts too many times, there's a good chance you're going to get cancer and so um because basically what happens is uh cartilage builds up and then the cartilage then cells go crazy you know and um so you know and tom had certainly landed on his nuts many times uh skateboarding (laughs) or doing and and i remember you know he used to do a lot of bits where he was just like yelling at the top of his lungs i remember one called rickshaw where he's going around on a rickshaw with like a uh like a, uh, I don't know whether those parliament uh, guard hats on, those big furry hats. Yep. And he's just screaming into a microphone or into a bullhorn right in front of people's faces. Yep. And just his face turning like nine levels of purple at the same time. The amount of bearing yep. down and pressure, that alone to me would cause lots of trauma <laughs> that too, right? That probably caused it too. Yeah. yeah. That caused it too. So was, okay. was Gary Busey your most difficult gig was that the most challenging from a talent point of view yeah no question yeah no question i mean it's um, I, he literally turned sam cedar who's now you know doing basically mm-hmm. what what i yep. do i mean he was the director yep. on that show and gary literally turned sam's hair white from stress is that true yep yep that is absolutely true <laughs> amazing um so sam i've known i've known sam for a long time yeah and um he he directed a movie called uh, "Who's the Caboose," um, which oh, was yeah. a faux documentary, a mockumentary yeah. about pilot season. Which he then went on to do again as a series. But mm-hmm. um, and I don't know how I came up with the idea of 
inviting him to direct it, but he accepted the job and yep. then I think he quickly hated me for it. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, he, he started to go gray. I mean, a lot of people on that staff were just Gary. I mean, he, I mean, he's yeah. so crazy. We, I think that show kind of reignited his, at least the interest in him. I mean, he was kind of, you know, very much a cult figure at that point. But then yeah. that show really got this idea that, oh, he, you can, you can play with him. Like he'll mm-hmm. go for it. Um, right. Like, so you, what you're saying I, is like, I, you, you could set him up with a premise and he'll play along with that premise. Right. Yeah. I mean, there, there you know, on the one hand, I always thought he was just a, fucking nut job like you know he would tell you oh well uh you know uh jim um a quarter of my brain is still somewhere on the dallas highway like really they didn't clean it up Uh, if you haven't seen i'm with Busey, you got to find the clips on youtube and watch i'm with Busey. it was basically this guy was was the the main guy was adam uh, adam delapena adam delapena and it was basically him just going around and doing stuff with gary Busey. and that's all you really need it's a premise for a show yeah yeah well i'll tell you how so the funny thing is is that fred armison and i were doing going to do a sketch show for comedy central and this is right before he got snl and it was going to be he did this um which I think he went on to do on the show on SNL, the the the, the Latin percussionist um, character. Yeah, right, right. And uh, kind of a Tito Puente, but not Tito Puente. And um, <laughs> and he had done some stuff for HBO where it was kind of hidden camera and stuff. And Comedy Central wanted to do a bunch of his characters. So it was this belabored yeah, development process. And I think we were on draft 12 of the pilot script. Mm-hmm. And, he call, and Fred called me up and said, Jim, I'm calling. I'm, I'm in New York. I was like, when did you? I just saw you yesterday. He goes, I flew out last night. It was last minute. I just auditioned for SNL. I think I got it. And so, wow. in fact, he did. He had gotten it. So, Comedy Central felt horrible, even though they, it was their own fault. And they said, listen, we have this other show. It's with Gary Busey. I was like, Gary Busey? Like, what are you? They said, it's interesting. And I knew Adam from years before. And it was like, oh, I know Adam. And so, Adam and I drove out to Gary's house in uh, he claims it's Malibu, but it's actually Pacific Palisades, but yeah. whatever. And um, and we go in, and it is, I mean, you know, cigar smoke lingering in the air. Yeah. Um, piles and piles of VHS tapes. <laughs> all of them law and order. <laughs> that's so odd and that that would be his favorite, that that's the show. That, well, he loved law. It was on all the time he loved it. <laughs> and he said, um, he goes, uh, I, I said, right, he goes, Here's, I got Everett Biederman. I got every episode of Law and Order here. I got all, every single one recorded. And I say, you know, I, you know, there's that weird point where you're like talking to someone who's insane, but you don't really know they're insane yet. And so you have a rational, like, and I say rationally, like, oh, you should get a TiVo. And he goes, oh, what? I said, you should get, you should get a TiVo. It's, it's, a, it's a DVR. It's like a VHS, but it's, it's, it's digital. And you don't need all these tapes. And he goes, yeah. but I got all these tapes. Why bother with TiVo, Jim? He's got the tapes. <laughs> well, and it was this weird kind of conversation, like a kind of circular conversation. Was like, yeah, I know, but then you wouldn't need the tapes. And he would check, always came back to, but I have the tapes. <laughs> like, as if, like, again, what the brilliance of Gary was, or his insanity, was that he actually started to make you think you were nuts. Like, yeah. you were like, well, yeah, he does have the tapes. I mean, why am I fighting this? And so... um that was the first time I met him, and we left. And, and Adam doesn't Adam doesn't drive, or he didn't at the time. Grew up in California, never drove. And so, um, 
So I'm driving him back to his apartment, and he go, I go, well, what do you think? He goes, yeah, that dude scares the shit out of me. I was like, well, this is your idea. I mean, you came up yeah, with the show. Right. He goes, yeah, well, let's do the pilot. So we do the pilot. Um, it's painful, but it, it's funny. Yeah. And the first episode, we he says, I want to do a whole thing. And, and Gary really thought he was doing – he didn't think he was doing a comedy show. Yeah. So I was doing like preaching and kind of teaching people things. So and he's he, um, so he's not so in on to, he's not in on the joke, right? Well, see, there's a funny thing because this is a very short sidetrack story. But we did an episode on technology, so every episode was kind of themed. We did it on technology, and of course, you can imagine Gary Busey highly suspicious of technology because right. you know deep state, blah blah blah. Yeah. And so um, he, we we went into a Best Buy, and we just have. Kind of, you know, ambushed a Best Buy and he, he was going to go in and tell the Best Buy guy, like all the hidden cameras and, and all the ways that, you know, corporate America spying on you, which by the way, turned out to, of course, to be true. Sure. But, um, but back then was like, you know, what a crazy loon. Um, <laughs> and I remember going and see, he, you know, he did if, in fact have a quarter of his brain somewhere on the Dallas highway. Yeah. And, and, and so he, he learned scripts like, uh, what's that, uh, um, mnemonic, you know, uh, by rote, is that what you, know, you... By, no, no. Like, uh, Bible stands for, uh, oh, something new... instructions before leaving earth. Oh yeah. Like mnemonic devices. Yeah. So, mnemonic, really, mnemonic. Yeah, yeah. so that's how he would, he would learn scripts that way. And it's the way he had, to, it's, you know, when you quarter, your brain is removed. So, um, you would, you could only really talk to him about the scene you were about to do maybe five or 10 minutes before. Yeah. And he would remember. Yeah. But, um, so I would, I was going down the list saying, you're going to go into the Best Buy and blah, 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 blah. And he goes, right, right, right. Okay. So, okay. <clears throat> and I said, you know, just go crazy on him. He goes, right, right. Crazy, 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 crazy. <laughs> And I'm staring at him as he's saying crazy like 20 times. And I'm thinking, this is going to be great. And so um, he starts to walk away. Yeah. He still walks away and he turns just before he goes into inside. He goes, Beerman. I was like, yeah. I walk up and go, what's up? He goes, so just to be clear, I'm completely crazy in this scene. I was like, yeah. He goes, all right. And he goes in and he is completely crazy in the scene. Like, it's it's manic. It's insane. It's fucking hilarious. This poor guy doesn't know what hit him, um, and he comes out. Gary comes out, and you know it's Sam yells cut, and we're done. And he comes out of the Best Buy, and he he's looking for me. He takes his sunglasses off, and you know our eyes meet. And he gives me, he points to me, and then gives me a thumbs up, and kind of like you know like a I did a, I did it. And he walks out, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, is he not crazy? Like, is, is, is he crazy or is he not crazy? Like, I don't know. And it would always moments of like that where I'd be like, wait a minute, he's crazy. I know he's crazy, but now he's actually aware of the, it's like, you know, yeah, it's like tel- it was Skynet or something, you know, it, yeah. he's become self-aware. So it's like, it's like really, really bizarre. It was so weird dealing with him. So the first episode of the series after the pilot, we go up to, uh, uh, um, the Red Rocks in, in Arizona and um, Sedona. And he's ahead of, he's just like, you know, a hog in, in heaven. And, yeah. and by, he's just like so excited, excited to be in Sedona because he believes all this, you know, the vortexes and all this stuff. He believes all this it's new age stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so 
he um, he had hired this woman named Peggy. Oh yes, 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 yes. I was just I was just going to ask you about the stolen video camera story, which is yeah. to this yeah. day I repeat that story to anyone who will listen. This is my favorite Busey story that you tell. Okay, so now that I've set that up, so, no no pressure. All right. So no, none at all. Okay. So he, uh, he Peggy was an aging. Uh, a sad aging playboy bunny. She yeah. might've been a playboy model like in 1968 or something. Sure. And uh, you know, the years had not been kind. And so, but she was his assistant and makeup artist and I don't know, blow jobs. I don't, I couldn't tell what their relationship was, yeah. but you know, she talked to, she was like, Gary doesn't think it's funny if he does this. Like, I'm like, I'm Peggy. No offense. I'm not talking to you about ideas. I'm just not going to talk to you about ideas. And so she'd go back and say, you know, Jim says he's not going to talk to me about ideas. And then Gary would have a blow a gasket. And then I have to sit there in a meeting with Peggy and she'd tell me her ideas creatively. And it's just yeah. like, the, the anger would just, I would just, I was so angry at the whole time. Cause I was like, this is just fucked. It's just, just, I just feel like, Hey, just be crazy and we'll be fine. Don't, yeah, please yeah. don't, don't analyze anything. So we're up in Sedona and Peggy has a video camera, like one of those really early camcorders. And she announces that it's been stolen. <laughs> that on one of our shoots, it's been now missing, taken out of her back. <laughs> And I go, okay, well, you know, I'll tell you what, I mean, look, we'll look everywhere, but if it's, you can't find it, we'll just put it in insurance and we'll get you a new one. Mm. But I really like that one. It's like, okay, we'll get you the same one. No, no, that's the one. I, it's got stuff on the video that I really want. It's like, well, I don't know what to tell you, Peggy, it's been stolen. I don't think anyone on our crew stole it, but you know, look, we'll look for it. So I go back to, we go back to the hotel and Gary's calling me all the time saying, you know, someone on the crew, obviously. And I think we should probably... One at a time, just talk to him. Because don't forget, he's had every episode of Law and Order at home. And he's like, uh, <clears throat> and I said, Gary, um, I'm sorry, you're insulting my crew. Yeah. Uh, I can tell, I can vouch for every single member on this crew. No one stole the shitty fucking camcorder <laughs> that the Playboy Bunny brought. It's, it's, I'm telling you. And he's like, well, someone did. And so I've <clears throat> bringing up a psychic from Phoenix. A psychic now is added to the yeah, yeah, it's a psychic. I'm going to bring a psychic up from Phoenix and she's going to help us. She's the best. She's the best. She's going to find out who took the camera. I was like, great. By the way, he, she, he had her invoice the production, by the way. Yeah. So, um, I, uh, uh, <clears throat> I go out with some, some of the crew, we go and have dinner and I come back and in the lobby of the hotel is, uh, is Gary Busey, Peggy, yeah. um, an older woman, with a cane, a, she's blind, and a young woman with that older one. And he sees me and excited, excitedly jumps up and says, um, oh, I should also backtrack one before I get there. And that is that Gary really does believe in Bigfoot and all these things. And he claims to have seen Bigfoot and he's, he's claimed to have seen, uh, claimed to have seen, um, you know, alien, a uh, graze, you know, aliens who live among us. And yeah. um, he, he, he believes all that stuff. So he was telling me that, you know, Bigfoot, a lot of people think Bigfoot, uh, only lives in like, you know, Saskatchewan or the kind of North Pacific Northwest, but actually Bigfoot, you know, has been, he, he knows of Bigfoot, Bigfoot sightings that have happened down by Sedona, which, okay, whatever. And so, um, I come back and he sees me and he jumps up excitedly and he runs over to me in the lobby and he says, Peterman, do you, do you see, do you see that woman over there with the cane? I was like, yeah, she goes, she's blind. It's like, no, I, I can tell he goes, she's a psychic. <laughs> and I said, Oh, that's, that's, that's kind of ironic. Don't you think? And he goes, why, why? 
said, what? He goes, why? Why is it ironic? I was like, well, because she can't see, but she can see, you know? <laughs> and he was like, yeah. And it literally, he kept on these things. I guess. Again, you're crazy, not me. And so, um, and I, at this point, I've just, I've had it with him. I was just like, I, uh, he goes, he goes, well, she told me who told who took the camera. I was like, oh, who took the camera? He goes, well, she, she can't see a face. I was like, okay. But she saw hands take the camera out of Peggy's bag. She takes the camera. I was like, okay. Um, I, I don't, that makes sense. Someone must have reached in and taken the camera. Yeah. So I understand the hands part. And he goes, she said, she said something really interesting though. She said, what's that? He goes, she said, whoever took the camera is elusive. He doesn't want to be caught. <laughs> wasn't it? Hiding? No, I, was gonna say, uh, I was just going to say, wasn't there also a vision of it being in a dark place? Yeah, so it was in a dark place. The camera was now in a dark place. And um, I'm thinking, I'm just like standing there going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he goes, so I think we know who stole the camera. I was like, who? He goes, well, whoever it is, they don't want to be caught. But she's seeing it, and I think we're close. I'm thinking, oh, my God, you're so fucking nuts. And I said, you know, and we had had the conversation about Bigfoot earlier that day. I said, maybe, um, you know, I have an idea. And he goes, what's that? I said, maybe Bigfoot took the camera. And he kind of cocks his head and he stares at me and like in disbelief and says, God damn it, Peterman, Bigfoot would never take the camera. <laughs> that is genius on so many levels. And he obviously doesn't know that it's just a genius response because as if there was any chance whatsoever of Bigfoot actually stealing the camera. It's just like, well, that's just that's really- preposterous. <laughs> He got so again that weird thing of like you're the nut job, and he got so angry at me. He kind of yeah. stormed off and sat down with the psychic, and I and I was actually this whole conversation took in fl- place in front of a Comedy Central exec who, uh, Margie Yespa, and she she was just sitting there crying, trying not to laugh. Like it was just because <laughs> it was always these insane. She and I remember we walked away. She was I don't know how you do it. I was just like at a certain point it's just fun. I mean I told him things like when he would really act out and he acted out. Terribly. I would tell him that I had a secret code. Uh, Comedy Central would give me a secret code. So I, all I had to do is dial in this number, this phone number they gave me, and punch in this code, and I could cancel the show. I could have the show canceled. Yeah. Um, and that, and Comedy Central would give me this in case Gary had gotten too out of hand. And he believed it. And so when he would get really crazy and do some weird shit on set, I would say, um, Gary, I'm afraid I'm going to have to call the number. And he'd be like, don't, oh, God, don't don't call the number, Peter. Like, he'd get on his knees and beg me, like, for the love of God, don't call the number. Please don't call the number. I'd say, well, I'm gonna, i got to call him. It's, you know, it's part of my job. <laughs> and he would believe this. Yeah. And so it was like kind of dealing with like a five-year-old in a six foot three, you know, battered, you know, sixty-five year old body. Yeah. And uh and and I mean, now and, and now he's president of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> Might you know what? Might as well be. That show could have been I'm with Trump. I mean, because they're yeah. they're basically carved from the same iconoclastic mold, right? They're, they are, they very much so. I so he we so someone complained he grabbed girls asses all the time on set and yeah. it, it just was like you know was like, come on dude and so he and comedy central had 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 a problem i think in their new york office so every production had to read the statement from their business affairs their lawyers and to everyone on set so i got the crew together read this thing and you know here's what you 
can't do this. What you can't, you know, blah, 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 blah. The, the early sexual uh, harassment lectures, basically. Yeah, and right. I go in and I read this thing to Gary because I'm by, by the rules of my employee, I am to read this to everyone. So I read to Gary and, I, and it's like a paragraph. At the end, I go, so, and, and I'm supposed to ask this question. Do you understand everything I've just said to you? Yeah. And he looks at me and goes, no, I do not. <laughs> and I said, what part? And I'm like, he's like thrown by it. I was like, oh, really? Which, 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 I can go over. Which part do you not get it? He goes, the whole fucking thing. And I was like, well, why not? He goes, because men and women are meant to be together. And I was just like, oh, my God. I was like, look, Gary, just do me a favor. Christ. Don't fucking touch anyone's butt. And he goes like, you're asking me. <laughs> not to reach out and touch something as beautiful as a perfect butt. I was like, yeah, I'm asking you, I'm telling you, don't do it. He's like, why? Why would I not do it? I mean, that's like, why would you do, Why would you say that? It's like, because it's a... It belongs it's to someone else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's against corporate policy, but more importantly, it's wrong. And yeah. he's like, I, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong. You know what? You know what's wrong? <laughs> You're not believing that God's way is the right way. That's what's wrong. That's why it's wrong. He would refer to Sam Cedar as, where's the Jew? Where's the Jew? Oh, my like, God. He's crazy. And, oh, yeah, no, it's nuts. And so, um, so it was always, he'd always, you know, he'd always default to the God, the Christian God thing. So apparently uh, Christian, the Christian God had no problems with, you know, him cupping some young girl's rear end. And so I, I, it was like, it was all that kind of stuff. And it, it was, it, it, I mean, I'm just telling you, like, literally a fifth, you know, uh, not even a fifth, like, 0.05%. I mean, there's every episode was just so fraught with this pain of having to deal with this guy. Yeah. And at the same time, I'll tell you in the edit room, you just say, Oh, thank God for him. Thank God for him. Yeah. He knew, he knew where the cameras were at all times. This is the part where I just like, is he crazy or crazy? Like a Fox? I mean, he knew where the camera was every single time. He knew when to give it a look. He knew, he just knew it was like, instinctual. it's bizarre. Yeah. And, and like I said, coming out of the Best Buy saying, was that crazy? Was that crazy enough? Was that good? And it's just like, yeah, what, wait a minute. Are you, so you're not crazy? Like it's, and you know, but then having an argument about Bigfoot stealing a, you know, his, his girlfriend's camera. It's like, and getting really angry about it when I, you know, implied that Bigfoot, and I don't think it was that I was making fun of it. I don't think he understood that. I think he thought that I was somehow shaming Bigfoot. <laughs> He's somehow indicting him. Yeah, you know, in this country, yeah. you're innocent until proven guilty, and you're unfairly yeah. indicting also, Bigfoot. Yeah, and also, Bigfoot is as close to pure nature as possible. What are you fucking talking about? See, now, when we first met, Jim, I, I remember uh, that first But You flew out to Pennsylvania. I had my little animation studio yeah. in some industrial park yeah. somewhere. And I remember begging yeah. you to ignore what the network might have said about me. Because at that point, we had yeah. tried to do the first season of my uh, animated sketch show. And it, and it just fell yeah. apart. It was just a disaster. It was a fiasco. Then they brought you in. And they flew you out to meet with me. And I didn't even know that you were on your way out. So I was clueless. I was, in fact, going to take that day off. I was going to do like a Bruce McCullough. I said, like, I'm going to go on vacation. And so uh, yeah. you show up and I, and I like was begging you. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm not a difficult guy. And, and, you're, and I'll never forget your I response. Like, you were like, you turn to me and goes, Bob, you're easy. I was like, well, yes, now that I've got the perspective of who you had just been working with, Gary Busey, of course, I'm going to be a piece of cake. Oh man, that was uh, that was fascinating. And then you know you talk about first meetings with people. I remember we had lunch uh, on that first day, and yeah. I was completely thrown. Uh, not only because 
I was unaware that you were on your way out, but at the same time, I knew your resume. I knew what you had worked on. And of course I had loved kids in the right. hall and Howard Stern and Tom Green and all these right. things. So you're like right. this legendary guy coming out and we're having lunch and I'm nervous as hell. And I remember I was, uh, I was trying to put some sugar into some iced tea and I flicked the sugar packets and I flicked like four sugar packets directly into your dinner. And so I was like, oh, well, this is we're, we're now off to a great start. Now, I'm throwing projectiles at Jim Biederman's food. Great. This will turn out well on this already fiasco production. Um, but you know what? Ultimately, Jim, you saved that show. You saved my show. Oh, thank and, you. And I don't think I've ever thanked you for that. So I want to thank you here and oh, now. because you're I mean, very, very well. No one else could have done that job. I, I, I'm convinced of it. You were the right guy for the right. Not only that, but not only because of what you brought to the table, but also the writers that you brought to the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether it's John Plummer, uh, Jason Nash, yeah. all of these guys who, you Chris know, Brown. yeah, Chris Brown, uh, Chris Brown, especially, I mean, this background working on uh, yeah. uh, G.I. Joe and all those animated yeah. shows. And then uh, Jason Nash, who is now just a, a yeah. massive Internet celebrity. I mean, first, a, a, yeah, a Yelp, right. or you, uh, what was it, a Vine celebrity? And now he's a YouTube guy. And yeah. Just blew up, and 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 that was like for me, that was like a dream team. That that first uh, that first writing staff, yeah, it was, it was a lot great, of fun. Great, great time. So, what are you what are you working on right now, Jim? Other than the uh, History Fluffer podcast, I'm pitching a thing called American Town Hall, which is a live, uh, currently a live LA show yeah. where people come and do essentially a town hall, but they come they bring their crazy characters into the town hall to complain about you know shit people complain about at town halls, yeah. you know, and uh, so it's got like in the live show, it's like Thomas Middleditch and people like that kind of come in and do guest spots, but we're going to try and pitch it as a, as a sketch, like a narrative sketch show. So we'll create a town and these kind of like little Britain, but yeah. with an American town hall kind of as the spine of it. So I'm working on that. And uh, a plumber and I have a thing in audible, which is exciting. Oh, great. Great. That's exciting. Uh, yeah. An audible original. Perfect. Yeah. And so, um, a scripted thing. And then, um, just things like that. I mean, I kind of, at a certain point, kind of like, I, you know, I have to do the money gig, but I still always try and plan the, you know, well, because I get a lot of phone calls. They're like, well, we have the show and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, that sounds horrible. You know, and, and <laughs> you just politely just, you know, I, I love, to, I can't. I'm so sorry. I, I'm busy on the yeah. next five years. Yeah. And so, um, uh, so it's, it's, but unfortunately you have to do those every once in a while. But I also, at the same time, I always try and, if I hear about an interesting project, I'll go after it. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, I'm lo- currently looking for stuff. But um, I do have to, unfortunately, I have to jump off. Sounds I've, great. I've got to jump off on this conference call. But uh, yeah. I would love to do this again if you want me to. And yeah. Are you, are you kidding? Things. Yeah, I'd love to talk politics one of these shows, too. So definitely, I'll, I'll look you up. And, and you know what? Thank you, too, for introducing me to, to Jen Kirkman. She is a genius. And yeah. I'm so glad yeah. to uh, yeah. to know her now. She is a master at uh, stand-up and everything else. So thank you, Jim. It's been such a pleasure. And I thank can't you. wait to talk to you again real soon. All right. Take care, Bye. man. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Lee Papa, host of AGD Podcast with the Rude Pundit. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll love my show, where every week I talk about politics and interview funny, fascinating, and filthy people. Find it at sexyliberal.com and on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and everywhere else you get your podcasts.